Hi everyone. So in this episode of our podcast, we are going to be going over the respiratory system. We'll be covering health assessment as well as diagnostics, um, upper respiratory disorders, as well as chronic respiratory disorders. So starting off within our respiratory function, just a little bit of basic overview. We know that the main function of the respiratory system is going to be for oxygen transport to get to our tissues, as well as for um, toxin or CO2 removal. This is going to be done through respiration and ventilation of our lungs. And there are multiple different organs that make up this organ system. With the upper respiratory tract, this is going to include the nose, the paranasal sinuses, your pharynx, tonsils and adenoids, our larynx, our trachea, and our lower respiratory tract. This is going to include our lungs, our bronchi and bronchial, alveoli. We know our lungs. These are composed of two lobes with the right lobe or the right side being three lobes, left side being two lobes. That's mainly because our heart is on the left side, so that way it has to be a little bit smaller. Um, a definition you do need to know within the respiratory system is pulmonary diffusion. This is the process by which oxygen and carbon dioxide are exchanged from areas of high concentration to areas of low concentration. And you know that we do this across our capillaries within um, our lung fields. Tidal volume also known as VT or TV. This is the volume of air inhaled and exhaled within each breath. For a normal person, this is about 500 mLs. Residual volume. This is the volume of air remaining in the lungs after a maximum exhalation, usually around 1,200 mLs. And you know, because of MedSurge, since we are working with our adult population, considerations we do have to take into, into effect is for our gerontologic um, population. So we know with our aging population, there are a lot of changes that do occur within our respiratory system. Um, one is within the alveoli, the surface area does become reduced. So that means that the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide doesn't happen as quickly and efficiently as it used to when that person was younger. Our BLI also start to lose elasticity as well as vital capacity. The amount of respiratory dead space increases with age. This can um, lead to diffusion capacity for oxygen producing lower oxygen levels in arterial circulation. Older adults have a decreased ability to rapidly move air in and out of the lungs. Now with this does not have anything to do with their ability to breathe or their ability to still remain active. Adults can still remain active. Now they might slow down a little bit. They may have to take more time to do activities. They may get winded a little bit more easily, but this does not just consider them nursing homebound just because you do have these alterations that are occurring within their body with age. There's some things to kind of keep into effect also to help you with assessing because assessment of an older adult is going to be different than someone who was 25 and an athlete or someone who's 40 and been smoking for the last 20 years. You're going to expect different changes within the body. So looking at assessment, you know that we first always go through health history and within health history, you know, this is going to include our medications prescribed, over-the-counter, as well as herbals, past history, family history, surgical history, um, social history, sexual history. Now, what's going to be important within our respiratory system to be focused on, first of all, we want to get a chief complaint. So what brings them in that's causing them concern about their respiratory system? Usual signs that we see within the respiratory system when someone is going through a respiratory disease, a lot of times you see dyspnea, which means difficulty in breathing. They could have coughing, sputum production, chest pain, wheezing, um, hematitis. These are all different things you may see. When we're getting this health history, we always want to um, find out when the onset of symptoms are, where the location of their symptoms are, the duration, so how long it's lasted, the character, so say if there's sputum production, how much are they coughing up, what color is it, what's the consistency. Also, uh, aggravating and alleviating factors, 
and also timing of presenting problem and also associated signs and symptoms. So these are all things to take into account when we're getting our health history for patients. Now within that health history, different um, vocab words are gonna be important that we need to know. We already said dyspnea. We know this is difficulty breathing. There may be discomfort while breathing. Um, we have orthopnea, where the person has difficulty breathing while laying down. We know we see this a lot within our patients that have COPD, our chronic um, respiratory disorders. Tachypnea, this is abnormal or rapid respirations. Hypoxia, or hypoxemia, low blood oxygen levels. Hypoxia, low oxygen levels. Um, and also our different lung sounds. So you know for doing respiratory assessment, lung sounds are going to be vital. So knowing what wheezing sounds like, knowing what strider sounds like, knowing what crackles sound like. And when you hear them, what does that mean? Crackles, there's fluid on the lungs. Wheezing, inflammation in the lungs, things of that nature. Strider, there's inflammation. There's kind of rubbing up together of different tissues within the lungs. When someone has a cough, we need to do recognize that this is a reflex, um, meaning that there's some type of foreign body um, or secretion, something that the body feels that is not supposed to be there. So it's trying to get rid of it. But what does the cough present with? Is it a dry cough? Is it a forced cough? Um, or does it occur on its own? Um, if there is sputum production, like we said before, what's the color? Is it thick? Is it thin? Is it a small amount, medium amount, large amount? All this is going to be important when assessing a cough. Is it possibly caused by medications that the patient's taking? We know that some blood pressure medications, such as lisinopril, this can cause a, um, a chronic dry cough. The person may present with chest pain. Same thing with this. We want to do further assessment. Now, side note, whenever a patient does present with chest pain, you always want to rule out heart first. So if someone presents with chest pain, even though it may be a URI and you know it's because they've been coughing in the past two weeks, always get a set of vital signs, always get an EKG first because you want to rule that out first because you don't want that person possibly going into cardiac arrest and now you're doing CPR. So always rule out heart first if chest pain is ever um, a complaint. Once we can rule that out, that's when we can go to assessing more so for pulmonary, GI, or musculoskeletal disorders. But we do want to find out where, um, where, why that chest pain is occurring. People who have more risk factors to have respiratory disorders, um, persons who have immune disorders such as asthma, exposure to pollutants such as tobacco smoke, um, different gases, chemicals in their work. Uh, exposure to outdoor pollutants, fog, car exhaust, pollen, genetic makeup, so there's genetic components, infection, flu, pneumonia, COVID, uh, obesity, personal and family history of lung disease, and then also probably the biggest one is smoking. So when we are performing our physical assessment as a whole, you know, when you come into a room, you always want to just look at the person first. So see, um, what they look like. Is their skin color normal for their ethnicity? Or are they gray? Are they pale? Are they ashen? Things like that. That can tell you a lot if the person is having difficulty within their respiratory system. Um, do they have diaphoresis? Are they sweating? Are they having difficulty breathing? Are they using accessory muscles? All this can be seen just looking at the person. Um, seeing their fingers. Is there clubbing of fingers? You know that's when the nail kind of of their fingers turn like round at the end. This shows chronic hypoxia. They're not getting enough oxygen to their periphery. So what happens to their body as their nails actually start to curve over time? Cyanosis. This is when their skin starts to turn pale or blue. So think about what other things that we're going to do if someone were to need a re focused respiratory assessment after just looking at them. Now we know the heart and lungs go hand in hand. So still assessing the heart is going to be important. Listening to our apical pulse, asking about chest pain, checking peripheral pulses, and then also going into respiratory assessment. 
getting our pulse oximetry, listening to lung sounds, all the fields. When we listen to lung sounds, we listen to anterior, we listen to lateral, and we listen to posterior. You want to listen to the front, sides, and the back. You cannot just listen to the back, and that's it. You cannot listen to the front, and that's it. You cannot listen to the top of the lungs, but not the bottom of the lungs. If the person has pulmonary edema, that edema is first going to start at the bottom. So if you're only assessing the top of the lungs, you're not going to hear those crackle down at the bottom. So doing a full lung assessment and listening to all parts of the lung fields is going to be important. If you do notice abnormal sounds, being able to identify them. Looking at how the person is breathing, like I said, are they using accessory muscles? Are they using pursed breathing? Are they having difficulty breathing? Is there a presence of oxygen? Are they coming in with oxygen? If so, are they safely using the oxygen? So all that is going to be important when we're looking at focus assessment for respiratory, looking at cap refills. Also going to be important because that's showing us is the oxygen actually getting out to our tissues. So we're going to get labs when people present with respiratory um, diseases. When you're looking more at our upper respiratory diseases, a lot of time it comes with infection, whether it be bacterial or viral. So CBCs are still going to be important. So that way, if it is um, an infection, we can look at white blood cell count um, and where they're at in their disease process, make sure that they're not septic, meaning that it's gone to their blood now and now it's a very severe infection. We are also going to look at cultures. We can either do this through sputum or we have someone cough up their sputum, then we culture that with a, um, a swab or we can actually swab the back of their throat or you know what COVID test now, um, depending on what type you have, you either swab within their nose or swab the back of their throat. So those different swabs that we use, and we can send those to the lab for cultures and sensitivities. It can tell us if it's bacterial, it can tell if it's, if it's viral, so that way the doctor knows how to treat the different types of infections. For someone that has a chronic disorder, such as like COPD, you may also get um, DMPs. So that way we can see where electrolytes are at. A lot of times when people have chronic respiratory disorders, um, electrolytes may be off because they may be malnourished. If, you're, if it's hard to breathe, you're not going to be able to eat as much. You're not going to be able to drink as much because it's going to be um, uncomfortable. So making sure we're looking at electrolytes and making sure all of those are in balance. Um, also, as well as pulmonary function tests, seeing how well someone's breathing. These are routinely used in patients that do have chronic respiratory disorders. They do help to aid in diagnosis and they assess respiratory function and also help to determine the extent of dysfunction, the response to therapy. They're used to measure lung volumes, ventilatory function, and also the mechanics of breathing, diffusion, and gas exchange. Usually they are performed by a respiratory therapist. So in terms of nursing and what we need to do, if we get the order, we need to make sure that respiratory is aware of the order, that is complete, and then that we have finalized results within the chart for the doctor to assess. So that's the nurse going to be the nurse's role within getting um, our PFTs. For arterial blood gases, again, this is something that's done by our respiratory therapist or um, a PA or a doctor. Um, unless the nurse is specifically trained on that, we don't usually get those. But we can look at the results and then also decipher the results. And if anything is abnormal, let the provider know so that way we can get treatment to the patient or also just intervene on a nursing level. Remember that there's always going to be things that we can do without an order to help the patient within the process of healing from their disease. Pulse oximetry, so you guys know about pulse oxys. That's where we put the little probe on the finger. Sometimes doctors will order this continuously for someone who is going through a critical respiratory disorder or um, exacerbation of a chronic respiratory disorder. So that way we always know where they are at in their breathing. Um, this works a lot like the telemonitors. So you'll still be hooked up to that telemonitor. It'll just be on their fingers or the little probes on their chest. And then the teleroom will actually continuously monitor those O2 levels. And if they become abnormal, they'll give you a call. 
We can also do imaging studies such as chest x-rays, CTs, MRIs, PET scans. All these can be used within respiratory. They can help diagnose pneumonias. They can help diagnose um, COPD. They help to visualize the structures within the respiratory system. Now, for the most part, for these tests, you do not need to be MPO because we're looking at the lungs. So the GI tract really does not get in the way. So they don't really need to be MPO. But if they are getting a test such as like a CT or MRI, we do need to make sure that we have um, IV access, especially if it's going to be contrast used. And then we also need to ask about allergies, allergies to shellfish or allergies to contrast. Because if the doctor puts in the order for contrast and there's an allergy, we're going to have an issue. So always verify allergies. Always ask if that person does have a history of um, claustrophobia. You know, with the MRIs, it was like those closed-in tubes. They might need something to help them with anxiety if they're not able to sit, lay down still in there for an extended period of time because they do need to be still to get those good pictures for the MRIs and the CTs. The CTs usually only last a few seconds. They're not long, but the MRIs, those can last up to 10, 20, 30 minutes sometimes. So the person does need to be comfortable while they are getting that test done. Or our patient may need an endo endoscopic procedure. These are usually used for diagnosing, like going to visualize or also getting biopsies. Um, we use something, procedures such as bronchoscopies. Now you're not actually cutting anything open. Usually for this, the patient is given like a light sedation. Then they're given a medicine to get rid of their gag reflex. So that way the doctor can pass a tube down their throat. So that way they can visualize their upper respiratory tract. Like I said, they can do this for diagnosing because they might have like cancer of the larynx, something like that, something that's stuck in their throat. If they have inflammation, if they have polyps, the doctor can go in and actually visualize the organ so that way they can better treat the patient and make a, a, a on-point diagnosis. Now for the nurse, what do we need to do with this? Before the procedure, we need to make sure that consent forms are signed. We need to verify that the patient has been adequately educated by the surgeon. If they're not, we need to call the surgeon back to the bedside. We need to ensure that they have adequate IV access. We need to make sure that they are calm and ready for the procedure. Um, during the procedure, we're really just going to be there just to assist the doctor. You can either be a scrub nurse um, or an actual OR nurse where you're passing supplies to the doctor. But for the most part, we do pretty much just documentation in the OR. But then within recovery room, that's when we're going to see a lot more action. This is where we do need to look at respirations, our ABCs while the patient's waking up because of anesthesia, making sure they are breathing adequately, making sure that they are, um, their heart is beating adequately. They will be put on telly because you can possibly run dysrhythmias following anesthesia. So make sure that that is okay. Uh, we're also going to check for LOC and their mental status as they are waking up and coming out of the anesthesia. And before they leave the um, recovery room, we have to make sure that their gag reflex is back. You do not want to send them home or back to the floor without that reflex back because they might try and eat and now they are aspirating everything that they are taking in. So that's going to be very important. The patient can also get a thoroscopy, which is where the pleural cavity is going to be visualized. Um, this one, you do have to make a cut within the skin, do it within the side of their abdominal wall, as well as with the thoracentesis. Um, the thorectomy, those have to be done in the OR. That's going to be done under general anesthesia. With the thoracentesis, what's cool about these, these can actually be done at the bedside. Um, and I've actually done one at the bedside with the doctor. Like it was just an emergency one that we had to do real quick. The patient was awake. This gave her um, what the doctor did. He had her fill out the consent form, explained everything to her right there at the bedside, gave her just a shot of local anesthetic and put a large syringe in between her ribs. And what he did was he aspirated. There was a large amount of fluid in her pleural cavity. And he had to aspirate all of that fluid out. So he was actually able to do that at the bedside. Um, so me as a nurse, what did I do? Made sure that consent form was signed. Made sure that the patient was understanding 
of the procedure, made sure that she was calm during the procedure. Anything that the doctor needed in terms of supplies or support, I was right there at the bedside with them. And then after the procedure, I just helped to monitor the patient, made sure that the dressing stayed clean and dry, um, helped with pain control. And that was pretty much it. It was very in and out. Like I said, she was only given local anesthetic, so she was wide awake. And then also biopsies may be done anywhere within the respiratory tract. Um, depending on how low they are, we'll kind of show you if it has to be done under general anesthesia in the OR or it just can be done like with local, like we just talked about. But usually biopsies are done if you ever think that there is a suspicion of cancer. So that way they can biopsy the site and run tests to see if it's malignant or benign, what type of cancer, because this will show the doctor what type of treatment that the patient is going to need. So within our upper airway, um, there are multiple different things that can occur, but you'll notice that when you are going through the chapter and reading, a lot of times, based on if it's bacterial or viral, there will be a lot of the same medical management in terms of they'll get antibiotics or fluids or um, humidifiers, things of that nature, corticosteroids, a lot of it is the same. So hopefully with respiratory, it won't be that difficult in really deciphering with medical management and nursing management uh, because they all do kind of run together, which is good. So talking about upper airways for a little bit, um, one of our most common is upper airway infection, URIs. Main things that when you're looking at this is going to be rhinitis, which is also known as the common cold. What happens with this is there's inflammation and irritation of the mucous membranes that are within your nose. So basically you're stuffy, you have a runny nose. For the most part, this is usually viral. We know the common cold is viral, so there's not really medications that you give to treat. What you're doing is giving medications to help relieve the symptoms and make the patient more comfortable while they're going through the process of the disease. For the most part, people really don't even need to be hospitalized for viral rhinitis. We know this is just something that passes within about three to 10 days at home. You may need to take a few days off work, rest, drink some fluids, take some robitussin or biasin or NyQuil to help with the runny nose, stuff like that. Um, and then you're pretty much back to normal. Um, it could be acute or chronic, so there are people that do live with um, chronic rhinitis or if it continues to come back and they go through exacerbations and remissions. And it can be allergic or non-allergic. If it is um, due to allergies, there are usual particles that kind of trigger people. Some of the main ones are dust, dander, pollen. So as you know, in Georgia, pollen is a really big one. And other temp factors that can be a cause for rhinitis include temperature, odors, infection, age, systemic disease, use of over-the-counter medications, as well as nasal decongestants, or also a foreign body. Medications include penicillin, sulfur medicines, aspirin, With drug-induced rhinitis, um, it can occur with antihypertensive anti agents such as our ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, our statins, so cholesterol meds, antidepressants, antipsychotics such as risperidone, and also some anti-anxiety meds. Different clinical manifestations of rhinitis. This includes excessive nasal drainage, runny nose nasal congestion, nasal discharge, which can be purulent if it's bacterial, sneezing, puritis of the nose, roof of the mouth, throat, eyes, and ears. Also, headaches may occur. For diagnosis, pretty much just diagnosed based off of a history and a physical. There's not really going to be any labs to be drawn. There's not going to be any tests to be run. Uh, the doctor may get a swab if they want to to see if it's bacterial or viral. But for the most part, they're going to just get a good head-to-toe assessment and history on you. And they're going to be able to diagnose from that. If it is allergic, you want to identify possible allergens. So that way you'll know what to stay away from. And then also corticosteroids may be required to kind of help with that inflammation. If it's bacterial, 
antibiotics can be prescribed, but if it is antiviral, we're not going to use antibiotics because we know this can be more harmful than it will be helpful. Antihistamines such as Benadryl can be helpful, but we know that they can't you know, drive a car when they're on that because it can make them really sleepy, but it does help with that inflammation when you give them the antihistamine. Also the nasal sprays. Remember with the nasal sprays, especially with Akron, you can only use these for a few days, otherwise it can cause rebound congestion. So making sure you're doing those proper education, even on our over-the-counter medicine, so that way patients are using them the correct way um, and not doing more harm than good. Saline nasal sprays can be helpful, intranasal corticosteroids, and then just doing education, making sure that they know to kind of like be on bed rest, rest up for a few days, making sure they know to drink increased fluids. We know that can help with breaking up um, congestion and a lot of phlegm in there, making sure they're still eating diet high in nutrition so that way they still have enough proteins and all their nutrients coming into their body, proper use of medications, making sure if they aren't antibiotics, how to properly take their antibiotics to finish the course. All these are going to be very important for our patients. For viral rhinitis specifically, we do want to teach that these are highly contagious, um, especially if someone that has been exposed, like say for a parent, their kid was sick, because um, there is going to be that exposure time before you actually have symptoms, that incubation period, which usually lasts about two days before you start experiencing symptoms. And during this time, this is when the person is most contagious. So that's why common colds do kind of get around schools very easily. Um, daycares very easily, workplaces that people work in close contact. The signs and symptoms of viral rhinitis, it's just gonna be a low grade fever, nasal congestion, Nasal discharge still, halitosis, so bad breath, sneezing, watery eyes, sore throat, general malaise, fatigue. The difference within um, the bacterial rhinitis and viral rhinitis is that with viral, like I said, we cannot give the antibiotics. And for the most part, they don't really prescribe antivirals because they're such strong medicines. So we're going to work more just on symptom control for our viral rhinitis. Fluid intake, rest. We can use expectorants, we can use the gargles, we can use NSAIDs for anti-inflammatory, um, antihistamines, things of that nature, but we are not going to use antibiotics. Also going to use those nasal decongestants. So a lot of the same treatment, just no antibiotics. Symptoms look a little bit different when you are looking at viral rhinitis. For rhinosinusitis, which we used to call just regular sinusitis, but this is inflammation of the paranasal sinuses and also the nasal cavity. It can be acute or chronic, just like rhinitis. It can also be bacterial or viral, just like rhinitis. Um, and usually with acute rhinosinusitis, this follows a URI or a cold. Uh, such as an unresolved viral or bacterial infection or an exacerbation of allergic rhinitis. Our symptoms of bacterial rhinosinusitis, purulent nasal drainage accompanied by nasal obstruction, facial pain, pressure, or the sense of fullness. Patients may also report cloudy or colored nasal discharge, blockage or stuffiness, as well as localized or diffuse headaches. They may they will present with a high fever. Now, with it's a viral rhinosinusitis infection, they're going to have all those same signs and symptoms, but they will not have the high fever, and their symptoms are going to be um, more mild than if it was bacteria. We're looking at how it's diagnosed, same as our rhinitis. We're going to do a good history and physical. We may get sputum culture, may get a throat culture, but usually history and physical can work just fine in diagnosing. There may be tenderness and palpation over the affected sinus area, so kind of palpating next to their nose to the left and the right. For treatment, it depends on the cause. Same as rhinitis, if it's bacteria, we're going to do antibiotics. Amoxicillin um, is the first drug of choice, but if 
patients are allergic to penicillins, then doxycycline or also Leviquin can be given for treatment. If it's bacteria, they do not need to, um, we do not advise the patients to take decongestants or antihistamines. Now, if it is viral, again, we're not giving antibiotics, but they can use saline lavages as well as decongestants such as quifiacin, which is robitussin or pseudofedrin. Decongestants or nasal salines can um, increase patency. So we do want them to use these as well as topical decongestants. But remember, these cannot be used for that three to four day period. Patients are advised to avoid swimming, diving, and air travel during this time. If they smoke, they need to stop smoking during this time. We know that smoking constricts our vessels. We want everything to be open and dilated as much as possible. So if they can, they need to stop smoking right now. Corticosteroids may be prescribed. And if it's chronic rhinositis, um, this more so comes when there's an actual obstruction within the sinuses. It could be polyps, it could be a deviated septum or something like that. Um, for the most part, we can use a lot of the same medical management, the corticosteroids and things of that nature. Um, if it is due to a long-term infection, we can use antibiotics if it's bacteria. Um, but surgery may be warranted when it's chronic, especially if it's polyps or a deviated septum. Um, clinical manifestations may present differently. They may have hoarseness. They may snore a lot more. They could have chronic headaches. There could be some periorbital edema, uh, but they will still have the sore throat. They could still have the nasal drainage, things of that nature. For these patients, we will want to get diagnostic imaging, especially if we believe there's something like polyps or deviated symptoms, CT or MRIs work just fine for that. So make sure you know your nursing management for these types of tests. And then like I said, besides regular medical management, like we've been talking about, surgery may be warranted. Whenever you are looking at ENT surgeries, these are usually done on an outpatient basis. After surgery, patients are usually only at the doctor for maybe like about one or two hours before they can go home. They usually will go home with some type of packing within their nose that will have to be changed regularly. Bleeding is normal. So that you'll need to educate patient and family on how to change that packing um, or change the dressing on the outside of the nose. They may have bruising, especially if it's a deviated septum, and they may need their nose broken and put back in place. So making sure you're educating on pain control, making sure you're telling your educating your patient not to breathe or suck in too hard, um, so that way you're not exacerbating that bleeding making sure during this time they're not using anything like aspirin because that can actually make it worse. Um, telling them to use ice packs because this can help with the pain and that pressure of fullness that they'll feel while they have that packing in and letting them know that the doctor will remove their packing. Um, so making sure they know what they can remove and what they cannot remove. Um, weight limits are gonna be important. They cannot lift anything that's heavy right after surgery because this can actually put pressure on the face and cause increased bleeding and then also want to go back to the hospital how much bleeding is too much bleeding what are you going to expect what's abnormal all that is going to be important and our next disease process is pharyngitis which again can be acute or chronic Acute pharyngitis, this is painful inflammation within the pharynx, so we're looking at the back of the throat. This can be um, part of the tongue, your soft palate, or the tonsils, but basically referred to just as a sore throat. For the most part, it is viral, um, and we know it comes with viral infections just like rhinitis. So I'm not going to go too much into medical management with this. Um, because for this, for this one, basically, you just have to write it out. It's going to last about three to ten days. But if it is bacterial um, and it does become severe, the patient does need to follow up at the hospital because it can possibly go septic or it could possibly turn into something like pneumonia. So 
that education needs to be done on when the patient would need to follow up, what signs and symptoms they would expect, such as if the disease does not start to relieve itself after a few days, yes, you want to follow up with a medical provider because if it is getting worse and not better, that's not a good sign. Our signs and symptoms of acute pharyngitis include fiery red, membranes and tonsils, lymphoid follicles that are swollen, and large and tender cervical lymph nodes. So we want to palpate like right under their chin and also no cough. They may have a fever and also malaise or fatigue may be present. If the pharyngitis is bacterial, penicillin is the treatment of choice, but if they are allergic to penicillin, erythromycin can be given or also azithromycin. We can also give analgesics for that sore throat, that pain that they may be feeling. Um, and if it's getting to the point where it is affecting their diet, a liquid or soft diet may be given during this time because it may be easier to swallow for the patient. We want to encourage cool beverages as well as frozen desserts to help with kind of relieving that pain and helping the inflammation some with that coolness. Um, or if the patient's not able to take PO, anything because it hurts too much, you might give IV fluids for some time. So that way they're still getting something circulating throughout their body, especially water, because this will be important for healing. And within chronic pharyngitis, this is persistent inflammation of your throat, of your pharynx. This is usually due to um, allergens for the most part, um, or those that work in places that they're exposed to a lot of different chemicals or dust or things of that nature. Um, also people who use alcohol or smoke regularly are more at risk. And there are three types of chronic pharyngitis. We have hypertrophic, which is a general thickening and congestion of your pharyngeal mucosa. Atrophic, which is a late stage of the first type. Membrane is thin, whitish, glistening, and also chronic granular, which is characterized by numerous swollen lymph follicles on the pharyngeal wall. With chronic pharyngitis, there's a constant sense of irritation within your throat. It seems like mucus is constantly building up within your throat, um, and it can be expelled with coughing. The person may have difficulty swallowing. There could be a post-nasal drip. Um, and also, the sore throat worsens with swallowing. So again, nutrition may be impaired. And usually for a treatment of chronic pharyngitis, we want to relieve their symptoms. We want to avoid exposure to the irritants. And we also want to correct any upper respiratory, pulmonary, GI, or cardiac condition that may be contributing to our cough. But then laryngitis. What is laryngitis? Let's go to laryngitis. This is inflammation of your larynx, which can um, result in voice abuse, exposure to dust, chemicals, smoke, and also other pollutants. A lot of times this go, does go hand in hand with our URIs. It can cause hoarseness, aphonia, which is loss of voice, or also severe cough. I um, mean, again, just like our other ones, it can be acute or chronic. The throat may feel worse in the morning and improve when the patient's in, indoors or also in warmer clients. And for management of laryngitis, we do want to include resting the voice, avoiding irritants such as smoking, resting, and also inhaling cool steam. Um, also for laryngitis, um, I'm going to wait on that. So keep, let's keep going. You know, we have our tonsils also. We're still working in our upper respiratory system. We have tonsils. A lot of times they go together with our adenoids. We know that these are lymphatic tissue that are kind of sit like towards the back of the mouth within our oropharynx. Symptoms of tonsillitis include sore throat, fever, snoring, also difficulty swallowing. Enlarged adenoids may cause mouth breathing, earache, draining ears, frequent head colds, bronchitis, um, foul breath, voice impairment. And we know a lot of times we see this within children, but you can see this within all age groups. 
for the most part, just like the rest of our URIs, you want to find the cause of what's going on. Why are our tonsils and adenoids inflamed? Is it bacterial? Is it viral? Um, if it's just a one-time thing and they can figure out the cause, they'll treat that, whether it be with antibiotics um, or just seeing if a few days of rest and fluids and symptom control can help the viral kind of heal itself but if this is something that does go on over time you know that you can have a tonsillectomy with or without an adenoidectomy which basically means removing them removing tonsils removing adenoids again just like our other ent surgeries this is done as an outpatient surgery and as with our other surgery um, i'll probably say probably one of the main nursing things besides airway breathing circulation besides pain control, besides nausea control, one thing we do a lot is we give them cold stuff after surgery, right? Because their throat's inflamed, throat's going to be sore. Um, one thing we do in recovery room is give popsicles. Biggest thing you want to remember, never give a red popsicle. Give your yellows, give your oranges, give your greens, your purples, that's all fine. Never give, get, and although tell patients this when they go home, never use red popsicles because if something starts bleeding within their tonsils and adenoids you don't want that red popsicle to mask that or you don't want them to think that the red popsicle is the bleeding so, so that way there's no confusion you stay away from red stuff after tonsils and adenoids let's see we know the epistasis this is nosebleeds Say, um, for the most part, nursing management, put cold compress, we lean head forward to control nosebleeds. We can do different tests to figure out whatever the cause is, um, whether it's like a polyps or deviated septum, tumor, um, there's something irritated you that was out in the environment. There's so many different reasons why someone can have a nosebleed. If it's just a one-time thing, really not much to worry about. But if it is consistent over time, the doctor may want to run some tests to find out what is going on. But a bigger disease process is OSA, um, obstructive sleep apnea. This is a disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of upper airway obstruction and reduction in ventilation called apnea while the person is sleeping. During this time, you know that they have a very loud snore um, the person will be snoring and then they'll have long periods of apnea, usually between like five to 10 seconds. And then that's followed by a big grunting snore. With obstructive sleep apnea, this does cause long-term hypoxia. The person is not getting enough oxygen while they sleep. This can lead to them waking up still feeling tired um, they can lead to headaches. Usually people that are male, um, postmenopausal women, increase in age, obesity, all of these play a role within people who are at risk for OSA. Um, and for the most part, people just don't even know they have it until their spouse tells them. But three of the main clinical manifestations that we do see is snoring, sleepiness, and significant other report of episodes as our clinical manifestations. Within sleep apnea, it is going to be diagnosed with a sleep study, meaning that they will have to either be in a sleep study office or have a special like video recording machine sent home with them. So that way, while they are sleeping during the night, it can be recorded. Apnea episodes can be seen and things of that nature. Just their different repetitive movements can be recorded so that way the doctor can make a diagnosis will need to um, be gotten for these patients. Pulse oximetry will also be monitored within the sleep study. And if the person is found to have sleep apnea, First, they'll try and just give them a mandibular device. And what this does is like a strap that goes around their head and it kind of pulls their lower jaw forward um, in front of like their lower teeth in front of their top teeth. And what this does, it helps to keep their airway open while they sleep. They can be given this or they think can be given a CPAP or BiPAP. Now this is an actual machine that you do have to use um, sterile or distilled water in. And it's a mask the person puts over their face and it basically blows air either like every now, every few seconds or continuously 
to help keep their airway open while they sleep. And all three of these methods are very effective for sleep apnea. For the most part, these people don't need like any actual medications to help them. So either the mandibular device, CPAP or BiPAP. Main thing for nursing is we want to focus on education, making sure they can use their CPAP and BiPAP at home. Um, make sure they're following up with appointments, making sure they are starting to sleep better, that they're not as fatigued, following up with their spouse, asking them how they're sleeping at night because sleep apnea is happening while they're sleeping. So the patient can't really tell you that much. So this is one of those diseases where you do have to rely on the spouse to get a lot of the information. And I will ask that you do read over Cancer of the Larynx within your readings. That's going to be a very big one. But I do want to go on to our chronic diseases because we have kind of focused on our acute and upper respiratory diseases a lot. And I don't want this to take up too much time. So let's get to COPD, also called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is a preventable and treatable slowly progressive respiratory disease of airflow obstruction involving the airways, pulmonary parenchyma. Parenchyma just means tissue. So our pulmonary tissue um, or both of them at the same time. COPD can, is either caused by chronic bronchitis, which means that inflammation in our bronchioles and bronchi, or also chronic emphysema. Within that, our alveoli expand, but they don't go back. They don't contract. So when we breathe in, we're able, they're able to breathe in air, but then the person's not able to contract their alveoli and blow out the CO2. That's why our COPD patients, if they're going through an exacerbation, they do tend to have high CO2, which makes them run respiratory acidotic for COPD. For COPD patients, oxygen is going to be lower than the regular patient because CO2 levels are up, oxygen levels are going to be low. So we know for regular healthy people, oxygen runs about 95 to 100, right? So COPD might be 88, 89. That might be their normal. We want to keep them at their normal. We don't want to get them up to 95, 96 because they're going to be breathing in that oxygen again, but they're not being able to blow off the CO2. So all we're going to do is be actually raising up their CO2 levels even more because we're giving them too much oxygen. People with COPD um, do tend to use oxygen. Some use it on a regular basis. Some just use it intermittently, but they need to be educated on properly how to properly use it, especially at home. They also may present with what we call orthopnea, where they do have that discomfort in breathing while, while laying down. So usually with people with COPD, you do find that they do sit up more, um, even at night when they're sleeping. They sit up in a chair and sleep. That's normal for COPD. That's an expected finding, especially if they're going through an exacerbation. <coughs> because of the chronic inflammation <coughs> and the body's attempt to repair itself, changes and narrowing occur within the airways. In the proximal airways, our trachea and bronchi changes include increased number of globulate cells, also enlarged submucosal glands, which leads to hypersecretion and mucus. Peripheral airways become inflamed, causing thickening of the airway walls, peribronchial fibrosis, exudate in the airway, and overall airway narrowings within our bronchioles. Over time, this ongoing injury and repair process causes scar tissue formation and narrowing of the airway. Risk factors for COPD. Exposure to tobacco smoke, so it can be firsthand or secondhand smoke. This is going to be our main risk factor, unfortunately, for COPD. Also, increased age, occupational exposure, such as dust or chemicals outdoor or indoor pollutants, and also genetic abnormalities, including a deficiency in alpha-1 antitrypsin, an enzyme inhibitor that normally counteracts the destruction of lung tissue by certain other enzymes. Now, how do our patients present with COPD? They may have chronic cough, sputum production, dyspnea. These are going to be our main ones, but they may have weight loss because if they are not able to breathe effectively, it's going to be hard for them to eat. For patients with chronic emphysema, they're going to have that barrel chest because, like I said before, they're able to breathe in oxygen. So oxygen comes in, lungs expand, but 
they cannot blow it off. So over time, the chest is going to become larger and get that barrel chest look. They may have metabolic disturbances as well as depression. Think about it. They can't get around like they used to. Um, if you can't even eat because you're short of breath, how are you going to walk around? So people become more isolated. Depression becomes a possibility. And for diagnosis, we want to get our PFTs, our pulmonary function tests, ABGs, because like I said, with NCOPD, they're going to run respiratory acidotic. And then from there, they can kind of grade how bad their COPD is. So grade one is mild, grade two is moderate, grade three is severe, and grade four is very severe. So within our nursing management, of course, if the person's a smoker, we want to promote smoking cessation. Um, that's the NCLEX hint right there. Nothing is ever going to be an answer where they say decrease smoking and it's going to be the answer. It's always going to be stop smoking. So if you ever see though they're going to decrease the number of cigarettes they smoke per day, for the most part, that's not going to be it because we want to promote totally stopping, not decreasing. Um, we want to provide supplemental oxygen therapy as well as education for therapy help with their prescribed medications. If they're going through an exacerbation, like say due to pneumonia, um, they may be given some IV steroids as well as IV antibiotics for a few days and they will have to be hospitalized for that. So we'll be the ones providing that direct care. Or the patient may just get palliative care. Now remember, palliative care is not hospice care. Hospice is end of life. Palliative is just comfort care. Because COPD can cause a lot of discomfort, having that extra comfort care on top of your active therapy can help to just keep them more comfortable, can help to keep them more active also. Different medications they may use for treatment include bronchodilators, corticosteroids. Also remember, oxygen is considered a medication also, so our oxygen, making sure we're given the prescribed amount. As nurses, we also want to encourage purslip breathing. This can help for them to blow off that CO2 more effectively. Another chronic illness that we see a lot within healthcare is asthma. This is a heterogeneous disease that is characterized by chronic airway inflammation, and it is characterized by acute exacerbations um, and remissions. So depending on the person, how exposed they are to their triggers or pollutants, they may go weeks to months to years without having an episode, but then be exposed once and have an episode. Or other people can be exposed daily and have episodes daily. With asthma, um, we know that lung sounds that we may hear is going to be wheezing because there's going to be that inflammation within the airways. Um, COPD, just a side note, for the most part, lung sounds are going to be diminished. But with asthma, again, they're going to be wheezing when they're going through an episode because we have that inflammation. Um, if they're getting into more status asthmaticus, if their lung sounds start to become diminished, meaning that you cannot hear them at all, that could be sign of impending respiratory arrest, meaning impending medical emergency. So we'll want to intervene right away with some bronchodilators, breathing treatments, something to help open up their airways because that means that air is not moving at all at that point. Other clinical manifestations of asthma are going to be cough, chest tightness, also dyspnea. Unlike other obstructive lung diseases, asthma is reversible, either spontaneously or with treatment. A lot of times when kids have asthma um, at a young age, a lot of times they grow out of it because as they get older, or you can grow into adulthood and still have your asthma. Chronic exposure to airway irritants or allergens also increase the risk for asthma. These can be seasonal, such as grass, trees, pollen, mold, dust, just our regular triggers. Um, could be smoke, could be different foods, could be exercise, could be stress, hormonal, medications. There are many different things. So the best thing if someone does have asthma is to know their triggers. That way you can stay away from them. When someone is going through an asthma attack, they will have diaphoresis and tachycardia, also widened pulse pressure. So their systolic 
blood pressure minus their diastolic. That is our pulse pressure, as well as hypoxemia and cyanosis. Symptoms of exercise-induced asthma include maximal symptoms during exercise, absence of nocturnal symptoms, meaning that they're only getting symptoms when they are being active, and also a choking sensation while they are going through exercise. Complications of asthma, like we said, may include status emeticus, respiratory failure, pneumonia, or atelectasis. Airway obstruction, particularly during status asthmaticus episodes, often result in hypoxemia, requiring administration of oxygen and monitoring of pulse ox and ABGs. We're going to give fluids because people with asthma are frequently dehydrated and also cause insensible fluid loss with hyperventilation. Asthma is controlled, um, is assessed by symptom management that we can give um, bronchodilators. They will have emergency medicine if they do have an acute episode, but then just also regular medicine to keep them hopefully to prevent them from having those episodes. If they do have anxiety and anxiety is a trigger, helping them with coping techniques, um, coping techniques, I'm sorry. Encouraging fluids, because a lot of times just keeping them hydrated also helps to stop their episodes from occurring so frequently. Like I said, and while they're going through an episode, if they do need supplemental oxygen, just making sure that they are monitoring that, making sure they're not giving too much. And our last disease process is going to be cystic fibrosis. This is characterized by thick, vicious secretions in the lungs, pancreas, liver, intestine, and also reproductive tract as well as increased salt content within the sweat glands. This is a genetic disease. So someone um, is born with cystic fibrosis. This is not something where there's really risk factors where they may or may not get it. Um, it's completely genetic. Um, and so if you have both parents that have that gene, I believe you have a 25% increase in actually getting the disease. And for the most part, both previously, people with cystic fibrosis usually um, did not live long lives. Usually you saw them live to like their 20s to 30s before they got some type of secondary infection um, that was their demise. But now as just treatment options are becoming better, and more well understood, people are living longer lives with cystic fibrosis. Pulmonary manifestations of cystic fibrosis include a productive cough, wheezing, hyperinflation of lung fields on chest x-ray, and pulmonary function tests result in consistent and obstructive disease of the airway. There's going to be chronic respiratory inflammation and chronic infections that cause impaired mucus clearing. Colonization of the airways with pathogenic bacteria usually occur early in life. So they're going to have consistent bacterial infections. So they're going to constantly be sick. Non-pulmonary manifestations include GI problems such as pancreatic insufficiency, abdominal pain, cirrhosis, vitamin deficiencies, pancreatitis, weight loss, diabetes, um, urinary issues, and possibly also infertility. Acute therapy is going to include um, basically controlling the infections, controlling the mucus buildup, so giving antibiotics, um, making sure we're clearing their airway, giving bronchodilators, nutritional support, exercise is definitely going to be a holistic approach to controlling cystic fibrosis. Um, sometimes even prophylactic treatment will be given in terms of antivirals or antibiotics so that way they can help prevent recurring infections. Routine cultures of the respiratory secretions are done regularly, so that way the patient can make sure they are on the correct antibiotic that will help to keep infections away or to heal infections. And also various pulmonary techniques are used to promote airway clearance through um, expiration of secretions. Anti-inflammatory agents may be used to treat inflammation. 
There is also sufficient evidence for the use of routine inhaled oral corticosteroids. Also, bronchodilators may be used if patients have a significant bronchorestrictive component. And that is everything for cystic fibrosis. So that is our respiratory system. And again, this covered assessment of respiratory, our diagnostic testings, our upper respiratory um, disease processes, but most of them, but please make sure you read the whole chapter and also our chronic respiratory disorders.